0: Welcome once more to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. So tonight we're going to be talking about something that may seem a little random, but I read a couple of articles about it recently or little tidbits, and I thought uh, it would be fun to do a show on uh, the issue of balding. Now, I'm not a person who worries particularly about their looks. I'm pretty confident that my looks are not what win me friends and lovers. So I try not to worry too much about them in general. Now that's not to say that I don't have a preferred haircut and would, uh, probably be a little distressed if I started to go bald. Um, but I think that hopefully I would be able to adjust to it because one of the things that I'm going to keep trying to, uh, emphasize tonight is that there's nothing wrong with balding and being bald. Um, you know, but again, I, you know, I like to wear nice clothes. I have a preferred haircut. Um, but I'm certainly not going to be one to rush out and buy a bunch of makeup or if I was to go bald, start trying to find baldness cures. And so, um, I just want to put it out there. My feelings on this are very much that it isn't for me. And so, um, I'm going to try and be very, uh, empathetic to people, the people themselves who are struggling if they are struggling. But, um, yeah, we're going to talk about all of this sort of thing tonight. Um, so yeah. Oh, for instance, um, another thing that is one of those things is, uh, going gray or um, having white hair. And, um you know, my hair is graying. I don't really care about it. Um, I do dye it sometimes, but mostly weird colors because I feel like it. Um, and so, yeah, I am uh personally trying my best to resist the pressures of society, which scream at us all day, every day, basically, that quote unquote, pretty people are just inherently better than others. And so even though that sounds terrible to you, if I say it, it is something that is really uh, something that gets to all of us, especially in America, especially in the current uh culture that we are living in. And so our deep-seated disgust at the vast majority of the population who do not fit into Hollywood ideals of beauty is something that we struggle against collectively. Um, And so obviously you may love people in your life who are average folk who don't look like Hollywood movie stars, but in the back of our minds and in all of the advertising around us all the time, we are consistently pushed to see the uh to see things in a heteronormative, uh, fat phobic, uh absolutely um, you know, being pretty is good and being not pretty is bad kind of culture. And so even those, even those of us who struggle against it, we, we're not unscathed. Um, I have certain body issues that I struggle against and they're not because of me. They're because of societal norms and other issues. Um, and so, yeah, And this is in large part why the current trend of the medicalization of baldness comes in and starts to worry me because baldness is a thing that happens to people and it has no discernible medical effect on their health. So sure, those who are bald or balding should use more sunscreen or wear a hat or a wig or some other kind of covering to prevent skin cancer. But once that's done, being bald is just a thing that some people, mostly but not only men, have to deal with. Now, this isn't to say that I don't think men who are balding shouldn't have the chance to remedy their situation. I believe very strongly in bodily autonomy and the right for people To modify their bodies in any way they see fit. That belief can be strained by certain extreme modifications. Um, I was having a uh, discussion recently with someone about a person who would like to replace their functioning legs with prosthetics. And, um, you know, I joke a lot about doing that with my foot. um, But for me, it's just a joke, but for this person, it's very, um, serious and they're seriously considering it. And, um, you know, as much as I do want to believe in bodily autonomy, I also, uh, do struggle with the idea of removing working parts of a body to replace them with something else, um, or nothing at all. Um, That I definitely struggle with, but that is not the topic of tonight's show. So luckily I don't have to struggle too hard with it. Um, The other thing that I strongly believe in is informed consent and that that should be the rule for body modification of any sort. I think that we should have a legalize and regulate approach to body modification as well as drug use, um, obviously, um, because you know, what we are doing doesn't work right now. Uh, you know, it's it's most acute in the area of drugs, but even in the body modification area, um, you know, I have tattoos and piercings and I know people, and um it's it's kind of scary how there are people who have to who want to have these things and are going to get these things regardless of laws and how hard it is that they have to go basically behind the backs of regulators and, um, you know, health boards and things like that because they are not actually being supported by our system. And so they're trying to do these things, they're going to do these things, and they have to go behind people's back. Um, You know, tattoo and piercing parlors are actually kind of largely unregulated, like they have certain things they're not allowed to do. But, um, you know, things like, for instance, tongue splitting that are not legal, that puts people at risk in ways that are avoidable. Because, If you were able to do it in a clean facility, in a place that is regularly inspected, that would be so much better. Um, For instance, another thing is that inks used in tattooing, they're not FDA approved. They're not checked out by anyone. They are often created by the tattoo artists themselves. Um, And of course, this has always given me pause despite the obvious issues with the FDA, um, I've mostly tried to stick to black work because black work is obviously done with inks that are the most commonly used and so are the most, uh, likely not to give you any kind of complication. Um, and so I have been watching, uh, some people talking about that, some tattooers where they talk about some things that, you know, are basically being made illegal because we found out that they are possibly carcinogenic. And even though there is some, you know, talk there about whether or not the levels in ink would be considered bad, um, it's still something that is, you know, we don't research the effects of uh, tattoo dyes, for instance, because that is something that is considered art and not science, um, even though it's being injected into people. Um, And of course, one of the things that I think about is the fact that there is no way that we are going to change our culture overnight. And uh, it's interesting because in the current uh, culture, being bald is seen in different ways. So uh, there has definitely been a surge in recent years of leading men uh, going bald and having being bald as kind of their signature. Um, I can think of, you know, Jason Statham, um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, uh, Vin Diesel and others have all really made a point to be bald and be okay with that. Um, And, you know, nobody thinks that they are anything other than uh, heartthrobs and, you know, men that are desirable. And um, so that's good that it is having that resurgence, because again, unfortunately, there is this real uh, problem with Hollywood being the thing that sets people's ideals of what is attractive and what is not attractive. But, you know, despite this, many people still equate baldness with the sort of stereotype of a down on his luck person who's could be possibly envious of his more follically gifted betters. Um, I think of the L Bundy's of the world, uh, Hopefully, that's not too old of a uh, reference for you. Um, And, you know, baldness is often seen, for instance, in villains. Um, So I think of Lex Luthor and uh, other things like that. So there's a whole bunch of cultural uh, meanings around being bald in sort of stereotypes and folklore and Hollywood. And so having all of that swirling around can make people feel one way or the other in a way that is connected, not necessarily to who they are in themselves. And of course, we know that baldness has been conceived of as a potential problem since the first civilizations started writing down recipes for cures to any kind of medical issue and now obviously we shouldn't judge our current situation a, historically so this is not the first time that uh being bald has been medicalized but it is a time when uh the critique is that It is now being driven by the capitalistic goals of extracting as much money as possible from people by exploiting their insecurities about their perceived physical attractiveness. And so this is something that, um, you know, when capitalism and medicine mix, no one wins except for the shareholders, Um, and so this is a real problem because we have a lot of, um, medicines and interventions and all sorts of things out there nowadays that are, you know, functionally useless, but are, have great ad campaigns behind them. Um, especially there's a lot of this in say the supplement, uh, market. And so most supplements don't even have what they say in them, um, from what I've read, um, at least, you know, lots of the ones that have been tested. Um, sometimes they don't have what they say they have. Sometimes they have things that they don't list in them. Um, and kind of regardless of that, almost none of them work. Uh, they are all mainly, uh, betting on the placebo effect and so um i think of things like airborne which i still don't understand oh well, i do understand um why it's still sold um because we don't have a good regulation on supplements and that's something that we need to be able to do but um you know the supplement business is big bucks and big bucks wins most uh, most every day over people's actual health and well-being, and so it's no surprise that the issue of balding has been uh, has come under the scrutiny of uh, medical capitalism. and so I think that it's unfortunate for many reasons. Uh, So the global alopecia market size was valued at $7.6 billion in 2020, and that is expected to continue to grow in the future. And now the vast majority of that is from androgenic alopecia or male pattern baldness. The International Society of Hair Restoration Surgery estimates that nearly 40% of men had some degree of hair loss by 35, 65% by 60, 70% by 80, and 80% by 85. Of course, I'm really wondering if at 85, <laughs> are you really worried about your male pattern baldness? Um, I hope not. I really hope not. According to the American Academy of Dermatology Association, about 50 million men and 30 million women were estimated to be affected by some form of alopecia in the United States as of 2018. And 2% of the global population is at risk of developing alopecia areata. Which is an actual medical issue wherein the immune system attacks hair follicles and causes hair loss, usually on the head and face. Um, so, for instance, that is what Iana um, Presley uh, has unfortunately suffered. And, um, you know, I think that she's a really good example of someone who has taken this issue and has not. Um, you know, embraced trying to, uh, you know, wear, uh, hair, uh, pieces and things like that all the time and has really decided to be a champion for people who don't want to have this scene as something that is bad and wrong, but is just something that happens. Some people go bald and that's okay. Um, you know, I think Ayana Presley is really um you know a wonderful great person because they're a wonderful great person um not because of what their hair looks like um and I know that that was especially hard for um her due to the fact that um you know there are also cultural um there are also cultural norms to be considered. And so, for instance, in the African-American community, hair is very important. It has very, um, you know, specific uh, cultural cachets, And so um, that I'm sure made it even harder. Um, but I think that it's really awesome that she has Chosen to just deal with it. Um, But I also would not falter if she decided that she'd had enough and just wanted to, you know, wear a wig every day and just be done with it and say, you know, I choose not to have to deal with this. And that would be totally um, acceptable. And so again, I really want to stress that my critique is of the capitalist obsession with medicalizing things in order to extract profit from those who feel insecure about things like their hair or their weight or their skin or their nose or whatever other aspect of their appearance that can be medicalized and thus commodified. I'm not 100% not passing judgment on people who wish to pursue any kind of augmentation or restorative practices. Now, I say that, but then i have to admit that i tried to do that um in the sense of fully allowing for people to do whatever they want with their bodies um but i fully admit that recently for instance i've had to really um sort of check myself and realize that i was judging people uh for instance who had had large weight losses and so um to my, my to my brain, when I look at these people, I immediately think that they look like they've, they're have they sick, like they've had some sort of disease. And of course, the problem with things is that, you know, when you lose weight and you're older, um, you know, your skin is not young and supple. And so it doesn't uh, sort of bounce back to its old self. And so you end up having a lot of excessive skin um including around your face and so um you know that is definitely something that happens and um who as someone who is a uh really big believer in fat acceptance and against the current medicalization of fatness i you know have to be careful not to judge people who feel that it's in their best interest to lose weight I've had trouble with that in the past and I'm working on it continually um because I have to understand that you know you can't judge people who get caught up in the fact that these things have been medicalized and that people have really been um you know convinced or that they actually do have something that they need to deal with cuz sometimes there's a genuine need Sometimes it's that they just feel like they need to conform and sometimes they have genuine issues and I can't know that. And so therefore I can't pass judgment on them. It's a work in progress, (laughs) obviously. um, I think, you know, all of us are a work in progress and so hopefully we can all uh, be able to... Uh, you know, allow people to have individual choice free of shame and judgment Um, because we don't know anybody else's story. Um, And so judging them on their physical appearance appearance in any way is kind of off. Um, But we're humans and that's what we do. It's not like we can stop doing that either. Um, Okay. So let's, this is enough uh, philosophical wrestling for today. Uh, let us switch gears for a moment um, and let's talk about some interesting ways in which people have tried to cure baldness in the past. And I want to say that I do think it's okay to gently poke fun at both the pre-scientific and scientific ways in which people have tried to cure certain ailments. Uh, Human ingenuity is amazing and sometimes pretty hilarious. Um, You know, some of these are a lot more realistic than others. Almost none of them worked at all, um, unfortunately for people. Um, And I do want to put a warning here. Because, uh, many of these recipes required animal parts and they were a lot less interested in animal welfare than many of us are today. So if you don't want to hear about, um, animals being used, I would probably skip, um, five or so minutes ahead if you are listening to this, uh, after it airs or come back in a few minutes if you're listening, uh, tonight. Okay. So going to give a minute for people to be able to pause. All right. Let's start in ancient Egypt where almost all of these things start, uh, unless you can really find something from, uh, Mesopotamia, but, uh, for some reason, it's always the Egyptians. And so an ancient Egyptian cure for baldness called for grinding donkey hooves, dates, and dog paws mixed with oil, which was then cooked and rubbed onto the bald head. Moving a little forward in time to 3000 BC, a tradition from India dates uh sorry uh offers a rather easier solution spend time standing on your head to increase the blood flow to the scalp and so that one seems at least a little less uh you know intensive than some of the others and it might have even helped a tiny bit because blood flow is important <laughs> and so uh going back to Egypt, uh, that original recipe not having worked, uh, the Ebers papyrus, which is a medical script found from around 1550 BC, suggests a mixture of fat from a hippopotamus, crocodile, male, cat, snake, and ibex be applied to the scalp. Now, if that didn't work, The patient should then try boiling porcupine hair and applying that mixture to the head for four days. Everyone's favorite physician, Hippocrates, offered a mixture of pigeon poop, opium, horseradish, beetroot, and spices. Apparently, Hippocrates was real, real unhappy with going bald. Um, Now, Aristotle, on the other hand, who is, as far as I'm concerned, the original internet troll, Um, (laughs) he suggests goat urine. Going back to Hippocrates, he actually discovered the reason for the vast majority of hair loss, Um, but the remedy, castration, just didn't catch on. Um, So he actually realized that if people were castrated, they didn't get, uh, they didn't go bald. So we'll talk about that more later. Now, the Romans tried to rub mere berries and other concoctions onto their heads, uh, but Julius Caesar ended up doing something rather clever. So, you know, the Roman emperor was supposed to be a god, but here's Julius Caesar going bald. So he got the brilliant idea to just wear his laurel leaf crown all the time. And so that was able to kind of mask the fact that he was going bald. Now, first century um men in China used a blend of rosemary, safflower oil, herbs, and crushed animal testes. <sighs> I mean, that's kind of a homeopathic way to do it. <laughs> um, the Vikings used goose poop, which is possibly my favorite. Uh, and one of the um, really sort of detailed ones is a remedy from around a thousand in Ireland. And this suggests stuffing mice into a jar, sealing it, and then burying the jar next to a fire. The person was then told to dig up the jar after a year carefully and with gloves on as touching the jar could lead to hair sprouting from the fingertips and then uh, to use the contents on their scalp. Ick. (laughs) Most of these were just gross. Uh, Most of these were just take something terrible and smear it onto your head and hope for the best. Um I read actually somewhere that Roman men would actually paint their bald skulls much like the uh spray on hair from the 80s. Uh so that's pretty hilarious. Um so yeah, we are not the first generation nor will we be the last generation most likely to be uh worried about our balding heads. Now let's turn to the more modern quote unquote scientific ideas about hair restoration. And again, let's note that they're just as weird in many respects as the pre-scientific remedies. They just involve a lot less animal parts. Uh, in 1896, an article, this is my, one of my favorites in Scientific American explained uh, that an English statistician had found that music has an influence on the hair. According to a survey of uh, musicians, he found that, quote, While stringed instruments prevent and check the falling out of the hair, brass instruments have the most injurious infect- effects on it. The piano and the violin, especially the piano, have an undoubted preserving influence. The violoncello, The harp and the double bass participate in the hair-preserving qualities of the piano. But the hot boy, which is apparently an archaic term for an oboe, the clarinet and the flute have only a feeble effect. Their action is not more than a 50th part as strong. On the contrary, the brass instruments have results that are deplorable. The cornet, a piston, and the French horn ask, Act with surprising surety and rapidity, but the trombone is the depilatory instrument par excellence. It will clear the head hair from one's head in five years. This is what the author calls baldness of the fanfares, which rages with special violence among regimental bands. <laughs> Um, and I also find it delightful that this article is directly under an article uh discussing the uh findings of Nikola Tesla uh concerning Rotingen or X-rays. So there's an article about Tesla working with X-rays, and then there's one about how music affects whether or not your hair stays on your head. Um oh, early scientific journals are delightful. <laughs> Um, of course, that's what people will say about us in a hundred years, but you know, what are you going to do? um An article in by English doctors in eighteen eighty nine wrote that outdoor exercise and good hygiene could prevent baldness with an article in the British Medical Journal asserting that quote strictly speaking, there is no reason to believe that baldness is hereditary which of course we know is totally wrong these days, and that there's definitely um, hereditary elements that contribute to baldness. In 1908, before he became one of the most infamous, as far as I'm concerned, directors in history, D. W. Griffith actually was a Basically, a snake oil salesman, he sold a baldness treatment called Yucatone, uh, which was said to promote a luxurious growth of hair. And unsurprisingly, to me at least, this seems to have been a formula taken from Native Americans who used yucca and chili pepper oil as a hopeful cure for baldness. Of course, I cannot stress enough that you should not put chili pepper oil on your scalp or on any other part of your skin. Um, that was in a couple of the articles that they were like, please don't, which, you know, I should hope that you would know that already. But <laughs> in 1925, uh, Alois Merkel, a Frenchman living in New York, was awarded the patent for a device called the ThermoCap. The cap was simply, basically, a light socket attached to a dome with a leather ring that could be placed on the head. The science behind it was supposedly that the heat and blue light from the lamp would increase blood circulation, clear up clogged up pores, and, quote, nourish dormant hail bulbs, unquote. There was a whole uh, craze for blue light. I think I might have talked about that at some point, but... Um, there was a whole thing about blue light for a while that people thought it was, you know, a cure-all. In the 1930s, an inventor and industrialist named Powell Crosley Jr. created the device known as the Exervac. According to Crosley, it had been discovered that uh, there was an effective way to prevent hair loss uh, created by Dr. Andrew E. Quoto, And uh, so basically the science here was that hair loss involved poor circulation to the scalp. And so thus, through a combination of suction and air pressure, the device was meant to stimulate hair growth. Now, apparently Crosley said that he used it regularly himself, but with a price tag of around $3,000 in 2019 money, which means probably about $4,000 now. Um, and it's, you know, lack of, Effectiveness, it soon disappeared from the uh, scene. Now, at around the same time, the first hair transplant transplants were being performed by Japanese dermatologist Dr. Shoji Akudo, or Akuda, excuse me, and he was the pioneer of the punch technique of hair extraction and transplantation. His work was refined by another Japanese doctor named Tamura, but as this was just before the start of World War II, their findings were largely ignored. The technique was rediscovered in 1952 by American dermatologist Dr. Norman Arendtreich. Unfortunately, both the original and rediscovered versions of hair transplantation using punch grafts led to similar to hair similar to that of a doll rather than the natural look of human hair. Now, by the 1980s, things had started to get better. If you're old enough, you probably remember constant commercials, as I do, for the Hair Club for Men, with President Cy Sperling declaring at the end of each spot, I'm not just the president, but I'm also a client. Despite this, the British Medical Journal in 1989 declared that for young men worried about hair loss, encouraging them to come to terms with baldness is still the best response. Okay. We are going to take a break and do some show promos and some PSAs. And when we come back, we're going to talk about people who have embraced being bald. Um, because again, not everyone is uh, worried about going bald. And um, there's some great stories in here as well. So I do hope that you uh, continue listening, but uh, do stay tuned to Evidence-Based Radio. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. Okay, we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And as promised, we are going to turn to people who have embraced their baldness. And so apparently there have been several incarnations of uh, the Bald Head Club of America and other such uh, organizations. The first uh, I found was a New York Times note from 1896 that states, when acting chairman William McClure left the rostrum of the stock exchange yesterday morning to attend to duties in the boardroom, R.H. Halstead decided that it was a good time for a demonstration by the Baldhead Club, which he had enrolled on Thursday. And so there was just that little bit. <laughs> Uh, one club for bald men was started in 1913 by John Rodemeyer of Canaan, Connecticut, according to the New England Historical Society. In 1883, the then 25-year-old Rodemeyer fell in love with a woman named Jenny Brown. Brown chose to wed an older, more stable man, uh, and so Rodemeyer started the Winstead Bachelors Club. Uh, the newspaper editor, poet, and humorist stayed single and kept the club going for the next 30 years. But in 1912, Jenny and he were reunited. She had become a widow and the two were married. And thus, Rodemeyer dissolved the Bachelor's Club, which at that point only had one other member besides himself and started the Baldhead Club of America. And so basically starting after the Civil War, this was a time when men formed clubs with satirical names in order to make business contacts. But, you know, this seems to have been at least somewhat legitimate. The story of its origins, which have to be taken with a grain of salt as Rodemeyer was a known teller of tall tales, was when a photographer visiting Falls Village, Connecticut, took a picture of six men seated on the steps of the Litchfield County Courthouse, all of whom were bald. The picture was then turned into a postcard, most likely by Rodemeyer, with the caption, The Six Sutherland Brothers. This was a play on the popularity of the Seven Sutherland Sisters, a Victorian family of women from uh, upstate New York with extremely long hair. And so, uh, they were kind of the original Kardashians. And I think that I'll definitely want to incorporate them into a different show at some point, um, to not give them, well, short shrift. Um, and I will note, though, that one of the things among, uh, the exploits around the Sutherland Sisters was that their father, Fletcher, at one point sold a patent hair growing tonic himself. So Rodemeyer publicized the club for years and claimed that everyone from Connecticut governors to William Howard Taft was, were members. Now, the real point of the club was its yearly banquet, as all clubs should be. <laughs> and so that is where the, quote, Knights of the Gleaming Skull would come together to celebrate as the happiest, jolliest men in America. And he even convinced the Connecticut legislature to grant the organization a charter so that it could expand into other states. He asked for the right to issue charters and set up branches around the country so, quote, groups of bald heads in other states might be united in a common bond of hairless brotherhood that every city and town might someday have its own club of happy individuals with shining pates and smiling faces. He further noted that the chapters would be created to promote and foster a sentiment of fraternity among those whose domes of thought protrude through and tower above the foliage that affords shade and adornment. And so, yeah, I love that quote. Rodemeyer Rodemeyer was often asked if he was, well, pulling people's leg and uh, so he often wrote about the club and in one piece he says, The Bald Head Club of America is dedicated to the proposition that man in his highest type is not primarily or necessarily a fur-bearing animal like the otter, seal, beaver, plush, Welsh rabbit, or mock turtle. Um, so you can see he was uh <laughs> not exactly a serious man now my personal favorite uh anecdote from this entire uh thing is this article from uh sunday November seventh nineteen fifty four in the post times I think maybe the uh um the um greenwich post times I couldn't tell the It was a picture of the article itself and it was cut off. So I couldn't, I can't tell you exactly what magazine or what newspaper it was. I tried to track it down, but I just couldn't figure it. Um, But it definitely seems like it was in Connecticut. And I'm just going to read it to you in its entirety because it's delightful. Stanford, Connecticut, November 6th. Three qualified women will try to crash the annual meeting of the all-male bald head club of America here Sunday. The women are determined to join their male counterparts, but the men doubt the hairless women will part with their artificial coverings. Most members go along with E. Robert Stevenson of Waterbury, club member since 1918, who said, I tell you one thing. If it does go through, I'm going to insist that women members not be allowed to wear any kind of false hair. He added, we've noted that women never take the same pride men do in getting bald. The more hair a man loses, the more he progresses toward being, becoming a higher primate. Club secretary James B. Rutledge, the only one who has seen the woman, has said, Almost surely they will show up with their disguises, wigs, on. This crisis in the organization caught the members off guard. I don't know how they did it, said Rutledge. Somehow they got applications all filled out and dues paid in advance. At first I thought it was a joke. I demanded to see proof. He rubbed his fingers across his bald head and shrugged. They are... We have to consider their applications. He refused to identify the women further than to say two were from the East and the other from California. I love it. <laughs> it's so delightful. Um, but at some point, this group must have dis- dissolved because another group was founded in 1972 by John T. Caps III. They were even profiled in a 1989 PBS documentary that I tried tracking down, but could not. It was very upsetting. I, again, tried really hard to find some of this stuff and I just couldn't figure it out. Um, and so, yeah, they were having conventions up until like, I think 2012 was the last one that I found, but I haven't found anything since then. Um so I'm sure there's still uh, associations of bald men out there. Um, in the mid 2000s, there was also a uh, small group that met in Japan and they would do this uh, one thing where they would have get togethers and they would have this sport where each of the, they would have two men and they would have eight two suction cups connected with string and they would put the suction cup on each man's bald head and they had to try and pull the suction cup off the other person's head. <laughs> it was very cute. Um, And they were apparently having a very good time and it made them feel much better about being bald, which I think is lovely. Um. So yeah. All right. So now that we've uh taken that delightful turn down uh, the historical lane. Let's turn briefly uh, at the end here to the science and to kind of reinforce my original thesis about why uh, this is important to talk about. So it turns out that we learned the majority of what we know about uh, the major cause of baldness from a rather uh, unusual and, um, let's just be real, unsavory source. It turns out that, rather horrifyingly, as late as 1942, male patients at some mental facilities were being castrated in order to control them. Now, of course, we do know that testosterone can be associated with aggression so, of course, the doctors probably thought they were on sound footing. Um, yeah, I some of the things that have been done in the past are really disturbing. And I'm also very disturbed at the fact that uh, in our current situation, people are comparing some of the terrible things that have been done into the in the past to some of the things that are being done today for people who wish to do their own informed consent changes to their own body and trying to compare the kind of callous dehumanized treatment of Patients in the care of doctors in the past to what people in this day and age are trying to do with their own bodies to make their own selves happy is disgusting. And um, I will... <laughs> I will fight them in the, on the beaches. I will fight them anyways. uh don't Winston Churchill was a terrible person. Um, he would not be a trans ally. Let's just be perfectly honest here. Um, okay. oh goodness, anyways, let us turn to the science of baldness again and so um regardless of that rather unpleasant origin, Winfield State Hospital in Kansas allowed Yale anatomist (laughs) James Hamilton to conduct a study on castrated men because they were already available for him. Oh God. (laughs) Sometimes it's just amazing what people will do to other people without really understanding. Anyways, one day the identical twin of a resident visited the ward. Hamilton noticed that the brother was completely bald while the resident had a full head of hair. Hamilton got permission to give the castrated man testosterone. Within six months, the patient had become as bald as his brother, which was permanent even when the hormone replacement therapy was stopped. This is in part the origin of the connection between baldness and testosterone levels but it's important to note that it's not actually testosterone itself, but rather a metabolic product of testosterone known as dihydrotestosterone that is responsible for hair loss. And it turns out the amount of circulating testosterone in men with and without balding is largely the same. And so in f- it's in fact actually a deficiency in an enzyme called 5-alpha reductase, which is meant to convert testosterone into DHT, which is the trouble. And this is the same issue that causes enlarged prostates in men. It turns out that finasteride, a medication that blocks the conversion of testosterone to dihydrotestosterone and is used to treat enlarged prostates, has been reformulated at a different concentration and sold as Propecia, a treatment for male pattern baldness or androgenetic alopecia. And while this is a treatment, it rarely results in a major regain of hair growth. Most of the effectiveness of the product is to prevent further hair loss So if you're starting to lose your hair and you want to prevent it from going any further, you would want to use this as soon as you could. Now, the drug's effectiveness can be somewhat boosted when combined with topical minoxidil, which improves blood flow to the scalp. So, you know, the Indian yogis had a little bit of something going on and encourages follicles to switch to the growth phase or antigen from the resting phage or telogen. Finasteride is not approved for use in women because animal studies have shown links to birth defects. Now, of course, my first thought when I read that was that not all women want or are going to have children, especially if it hits later in life, but a discussion of the absolute obsession with procreation when it comes to women's health is the source for its own entire show Another Day, um, and we would be giving it too short a shrift here um, at the end of this program. Um, yeah, it's it's wild. <laughs> no women can take it because one woman might get preg- pregnant. Sigh. Um, but luckily, minoxidil can be used by women. Now, there is also a suggestion that insulin resistance may be linked to some hair loss issues, but more research needs to be done to confirm that. And of course, the other thing that has come along is surgery. So um, newer versions of hair transplantation are much more naturalistic looking. You don't end up looking like an old Barbie doll any longer. And so that's really useful for people because, um, you know, if they do want to have an intervention, then the interventions are actually pretty good nowadays and you can get pretty good results as far as naturalistic, um, changes that, you know, will help at least new people who've never met you, not, uh, not know that you ever had, uh, a problem with balding. And that is, um, you know, that does involve actually moving follicles, which then do stay alive. They don't go back into um, they don't become telogenic again. And so, you know, that is at least good. Um, of course, that's an expensive procedure, so there is that. And um, again, that's one of those sort of money-making places. And in fact, let's talk about my uh, overarching thesis a bit more, which is the connection, uh, the very strong connection between the medicalization of uh, baldness and profit. And so a 2021 article in the journal Health Psychology by Glenn Jankowski of Leeds, Beckett University, and Frith of the University of Surrey, both in the UK, looks at the psychology of the medicalization of male baldness. They reviewed 37 male baldness psychosocial impact studies and found that most studies had commercial influences, 78% represented baldness as a disease, 77%, were conducted on biased samples, 68%, and advocated for baldness products or services, 60% of the time, while admitting their limitations, 68% of the time. They note specifically that androgenetic alopecia typically refers to the common occurrence of loss of hair among men that is not caused by an illness. It results in no physically harmful or life-limiting consequences, Nevertheless, it is medicalized, where it is transformed into a disease largely on the premise that it is profoundly psychosocially distressing. The disease status of baldness can then be used to promote, quote, commercial interventions, including pharmaceuticals, surgery, wigs, or other related products as medical treatments. They actually argue that some of the... Um, the papers that are looked at don't actually claim that men with baldness are actually being uh, hurt in any way. And so they looked at all of these and found that, um, you know, this is a real problem with the medicalization. And so they conclude The results of this review show systematically that the research assessing the psychosocial impact of balding on men is largely conducted by those with commercial vested interests in baldness products and services, and this research medicalizes baldness by defining it as a disease via selective sampling of intervention-oriented men and through the implicit and explicit advocacy of cosmetic and pharmaceutical products and services. Such medicalization through psychosocial research, often by psychology authors, must be challenged if balding men are to provide informed consent in responding to their baldness. So yeah, it's all about informed consent and we often do not have informed consent in a capitalist society. All right, that is all the time we have for tonight and I will be back next week. You have been listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.